the little Bible study group sat down with the book of Exodus open on their laps. What is it all about, said Laura. Oh, it's just history, said Ben. It simply tells us what God did for Israel. It may tell us something about God's character, but all the events are one-offs. Of course God doesn't appear in burning bushes, said play send plague on the Egypts of this world and doesn't part the Red Sea today, does he? Oh, but he does, said Robert indignantly. God shows up again and again in history, as he did here. Perhaps not quite so dramatically, but God raises up nations and puts them down, as he did with Egypt. God protects his church, his people. He sets them free. This is a political document for today, said Robert. No, no, said Jane, it's about spiritual things. God shows himself to us in our hearts, not in burning bushes. God defeats sin and evil and the devil, not modern nations. God sets us free in our hearts. But isn't it about our future hope, said David? One day we will see God face to face as uh, Moses almost did in that bush. One day the whole world will be judged as Egypt was. One day it won't be the Red Sea being parted, it will be graves being opened, people liberated into the new heaven and the new earth. There's a silence for a moment and then Laura spoke again. What did you say was all about? I think that's one of the great challenges for understanding the book of, book of Exodus. Um, the rest of the Bible understands Exodus as a model of how God works actually in all situations, in every dimension of life, at all times of life, right up until the end. God's, God's work spiritually, historically, until the end of time, is Exodus-like, says the Bible. It is the great model for how God works in his world. We said that right at the beginning, didn't we? Do you remember I said said that that nations are often shaped by their founding documents, that nation's understanding of itself becomes epitomised in um, great statements like liberty, um, uh, uh, equality, brotherhood in France. That all men are created equal in America. Well, so this book of Exodus actually shapes everything that we are to understand about the way God works for the rest of history. So it is one of the great challenges in understanding the book of Exodus as the Bible understands it is that we have to, have to see it uh, to a certain extent how God works in all sorts of different areas of life in an Exodus-like way. I want us actually to spend uh, probably most of our time this morning actually just reviewing Exodus 1 to uh, all the way from 1 to, to, to 15 and trying to get in our minds 
how the Bible understands Exodus now that we have seen most of the, uh, the uh, or some of the key events of the story. How does the Bible understand this great event in Israel's history? First thing we need to um, see is uh, that um, the historical Exodus that we've been looking at in, in uh, these early chapters of, of the book is a series of historical events where Israel have find, are liberated to freedom from slavery in Egypt. They are liberated through or by the defeat of Egypt. We've just seen that already this morning. And they are liberated to the promised land. They don't actually get to the promised land in Exodus but they are well on the way. And uh, in a sense the Exodus story is not complete until they are finally there. So God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Moses confronted Pharaoh. God sent those plagues. Um, finally there was that plague on the firstborn son. Israel was spared because she, uh, the family sacrificed a lamb. Israel was set free. We saw, we, uh, I just told you briefly about how they marched out. They marched through the Red Sea Finally, Egypt was engulfed in the, in the Red Sea. That whole process was a process of freedom from slavery in Egypt by defeating, Egypt, uh, by defeating Egypt in order that they could get to the Promised Land. But actually it didn't work. That's what the, that's what the Old Testament tells us. That did not work. Israel was still sinful when they got to the Promised Land. It didn't work out as it was supposed to. And finally, actually, God sent them into exile again as a judgment on Israel. When we get to the prophets, they start to say something new and significant about the Exodus. They start to say, there's going to be another one. This time it will be an escape to freedom from slavery amongst all the nations because at that point Israel had been scattered amongst the nations. This time it's going to be a slavery, a, 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 a victory through the defeat of all nations. And this time they're going to go to the promised land but when the prophets describe the promised land they describe it in what you might call an, an idealised way, a supernatural way. Isaiah chapter 11 is actually a classic statement of this and it's worth us turning it up to, together to try to uh, get a flavour of how the rest of the Old Testament sees the Exodus Isaiah 11 is on page 697 in the Church Bibles. Isaiah is promising a glorious future for Israel who are now in slavery again. Look at verses 11 and 12 of uh, chapter 11. Um, in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea, from everywhere in other words. He will raise a banner for the nations. 
and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. God will reach out a second time. He reached out once to deliver them from Egypt. Now he's going to do it a second time from every nation. He will do miracles, says Isaiah, greater even than the parting of the Red Sea, verse 15. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Oh no, he won't just part the Red Sea. Part the Euphrates as well. They've come from all directions. And the promised land that Israel will come into will be a supernatural one, says Isaiah. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 11. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth, the earth, not just the land of Israel, the earth will be filled full with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is going to do something far greater than the Exodus, says Isaiah. And when Jesus comes along, Jesus makes it plain what God is actually going to do, what this supernatural exodus is all about. God is going to free his people from slavery more profound than just that slavery in Egypt. He is going to free his people from slavery to sin itself. There's a fascinating conversation that Jesus has in John chapter 8 and excuse me for making you flick through your Bibles but it's worth it just for this morning. I don't usually do it. Page 1074. John 8. In verse 32 of John chapter 8, Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But these, his listeners, Jews, answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? In other words, they say, We've been set free already from Egypt, Jesus. We're not slaves any longer. It's fundamental to our national identity that the exodus has happened. What are you talking about us still being enslaved? Verse 34 though, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants. That's the true slavery we must escape, says Jesus. 
And then Jesus sets about doing it. He casts out demons. If you read the Gospels, you know what a prominent theme that is. Because he is showing that his aim is to defeat the devil himself. The devil who incites us to sin. The devil who then takes the accusation against us for our sins to God and demands justice that we must be punished. No, the devil must be defeated if we are to be free. And Jesus also calls us not to the promised land. There is not yet any land on earth which is the promised land. He calls us to himself. The Old Testament again and again living happily in the promised land was described as rest. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He rescues us from slavery to sin by defeating the devil and brings us into a relationship with him which is like coming home like dwelling in the promised land. But there is more. There is more that the New Testament looks forward to because it looks forward beyond today, beyond what, can, what spiritually happens to us today, towards eternity. In eternity, we are rescued from, from death itself, The Bible describes us being held in slavery by the reality and the fear of death. But in eternity graves will be opened and God's people will rise to eternal life. Through uh, the defeat of absolutely every force that is opposed to us, the devil but even the reality of death itself is defeated. And then finally we get to that promised land that Isaiah had surely started to see when he described animals not eating each other. A new heaven and a new earth. And so we live now between the times. We live in a moment now when that exodus freedom is a spiritual reality for us. Jesus died on the cross actually at a moment which was filled with exodus themes. Darkness came on the land as a sign of God's judgement. Jesus is described as the Lamb of God sacrificed in a similar way to that, uh, those lambs that were sacrificed in exodus. But this time to set us free from the devil's accusations because now God himself has paid for our sins. We live with that spiritual freedom and look forward to one day that fully physical freedom as physical and real, in fact more physical and real than the escape from Egypt ever was and more complete when Jesus finally comes again and brings the new heaven and the new earth.
you see why I said then that the, the story of the Exodus is a, is, a, is a foundation really for the whole story of the Bible that echoes throughout the Bible again and again. So how are we to live as Christians then? Well, let me suggest um, um, three things that we need to have learned so far from the book of Exodus before we move on and see the rest of the story. Let me suggest that it is vitally important that we live knowing God. That's the burden of uh, uh, the first four chapters, isn't it? God appears to Moses. He reveals himself as holy. Take off your shoes, Moses. He reveals himself as compassionate. I have compassion on these people. He reveals himself as faithful. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He reveals himself as willing to come down. I have come down to rescue them. He reveals himself as the great eternal unchanging I am. Before anything happens in the book of Exodus, God shows Moses and then Israel who he is. Before anything can happen in our lives, God must do that. You know God? See, if we do, nothing in our life is the same again. God is the source of all beauty, all joy, all love, all delight. It was, it's very interesting how people, um, people chose Eliza, isn't it? Somehow, particularly in our society today, it is that, that attractiveness that really, really makes us want to serve someone. And there is no one more attractive than Jesus. He is unchangeably faithful. He is unutterably holy. He is unimaginatively loving. Unimaginably. When we know Christ, we will not want to live away from him. We will not want to indulge those silly, temporary, tawdry little desires of ours because we've tasted something greater, far richer, far sweeter, far more enduring. You know, who wants, a, wants baby food again when you've started the, uh, finding out the delights of adult cuisine? Right? Who wants the insipid, bland pleasures of money, sex and power when we have tasted the rich pleasures of God? What determines your life? What determines the next job that you will take? Is it the desire for status or money or just to do the most enjoyable thing or is it a hunger for that far greater delight 
of living for God who has captivated our hearts, who, who, who we want to fill more and more with every, every moment adoring and delighting in and worshipping and serving. first thing about being free, being set free, is to know God. The second thing is that we must know, deep in our hearts, we must see and live that the reality that actually our world, our whole world, every nation, says the Bible, faces judgment. And only Christ's sacrifice can save us. Do you remember we said, um, when we were looking at that last plague, the plague on the firstborn of the Egyptians, do you remember we said that whilst some other plagues actually seem to select Israel specifically just because they're Israel. The plague on the firstborn would actually have come upon every family in the land were it not for the fact that Israelite families sacrificed those lambs. We must see that. We must see that our, that our whole world as a system is going to be judged by God and the only way for anyone to escape is by accepting the sacrificial death of Christ as sufficient for my sins. We've tried to make the case over the last couple of weeks that actually... Actually, this world is full of signs of that judgment, is increasingly unable. The, the things that we trust in and entrust ourselves to are increasingly unable to give what they promise us. Our welfare state is stretched to the limit. We were saying how much we struggle to educate, to educate children because of the, the um, uh, uh, increased social problems there are in our country. Even the might of uh, great economies and great armies do not confer safety on us. God allows warning after warning after warning to come into our world to remind us that no nation, no empire, no power in this world is eternal or able to make us safe. Only the death of Christ. We are to be a people then who live that, who, who stand out against the forces that would set themselves up against Christ or as substitutes for Christ. But we are to be a people who are passionately committed actually as well to rescuing some from that dominion 
Uh, Exodus chapter 12, 38 is a fascinating verse because it describes actually as the Israelites leave Egypt how they take many others with them. Clearly though Moses was uh, um, a great figure of hatred for Pharaoh he was a figure of hope for many others in Egypt. And not only the Israelites, but others too, came with Moses and the people to the Promised Land. And we must live that. That's our calling. I don't think, I'm not sure how much we really grasp the temporary, uncertain, weak nature of all those things that we think make us secure and how actually eternally secure we are in Christ. It is only actually as Christians live like that as Christians stand up and say, I will not entrust myself to money. I will make decisions about my life that do not depend on how much money I can get. I will not entrust myself to the career path. I will make decisions in my life that do not depend on me having a successful career by the world's, world's standards. I will not entrust myself to uh, the, the, the gurus of, of, of um, uh, relationships. I will let God bring along the right partner for me at the right time, in the right way and I will focus on serving him. Not dashing after the perfect partner. Till we live actually trusting Christ only. I doubt whether we'll bring many others with us. That's what that's what this that's what the, the partly what the redevelopment of the building is all about, as as it becomes obvious in all sorts of uh, dimensions that, that that our world is desperately in need of care that Christians can offer. We need to be ready to do that, to speak clearly to them about Christ, and to model Christ in the way that we live as a community and as individuals. It's only as Christians are prepared to actually pay the cost, perhaps financially, perhaps in other ways, that the world really sees. You know, I have a feeling we may have a test coming our way. The news uh, is constantly telling us that the experts are saying that it's, it's not if, it's when the bird flu epidemic happens. And... Uh, the chances are, because it's been a long, long time since the last global pandemic of new flu virus hit, the chances are it will be at the serious end of the scale. And that, that means, say the expert, it could kill tens of thousands, at least in this country. Now interestingly, in the first three centuries of uh, 
the Christian church, there were a couple of massive plagues that wiped out enormous numbers of people. Probably the first one was smallpox and the second one was measles. And what happened during those plagues in the cities was that uh, everybody fled. Actually, Galen, the great father of uh, modern medicine that some of you may have heard about, he fled with the rest of them. He he leaves a very sketchy description of the plague because he made sure he was as far as he possibly could be from it. He's unusually sketchy about it. The uh, pagan priests fled. Uh, It's said um, by one author that actually people just gave up on their pagan gods because the bodies were just piling up in the temples and no one was being saved. But you see, Christians stayed. Christians knew they weren't immune from death. Think of Christ as being some magic talisman. Their hope was resurrection life. And they knew that to serve other people was more important than to preserve their lives. So they stayed. Interestingly, they seemed actually to have survived relatively well because they cared for one another when actually their pagan neighbours were throwing out members of the family onto the street before they were actually dead to try and get the infection out of their houses. And the church grew. I wonder how we'll respond. They say it's very likely that the infrastructure of Britain for a period will if not completely break down, have severe problems. Will Christians be volunteering to help? We must live as those who know this world is passing and will face judgment. But we are eternally secure in Christ and we are called to live following Christ in our world. Now I'm deeply frustrated that we couldn't spend time because I I just felt we must review it. We couldn't spend time on on Exodus 14 to 15 in any detail. But let me just um, uh, suggest a lesson that comes in the latter um, part of our story up to the end of chapter 15. We must live knowing that our path may be confusing but the end point is absolutely certain. There is a lot of confusion, really, um, uh, uh, in the, in, uh, certainly what seems to have been in the Israelites' minds, um, but about why God is leading them in the direction that he does. Because he doesn't take them by the high road, chapter 13, verse 17, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. 
Interestingly, God often leads in that way, frankly. We just don't know why he's taking us in certain directions. But you see, Moses tells us here, God did this because they might face war on that highway. There's a slight irony there because they're going off on a road that will lead them to a complete cul-de-sac faced with uh, the Red Sea ahead of them and a massive Egyptian army um, behind them and uh, we're told that's to save them from war. God has his wisdom. God will win his victories. Verse 21 to 22 of chapter 13. He leads them by day. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they would travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud nor the, by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Sometimes he actually might even call us to retrace our steps. So confusing is this path. Chapter 14 verse 2 tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. And following God, frankly, in that, that confusing world where we just can't see quite what he's doing, can be terrifying. Chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Predictably, they complained. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? And, uh, but actually, God promises to fight for them. Verse uh, 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, says God. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. And so it was. The Red Sea was parted. The people went to freedom. The, Israelite, the, the Egyptians were drowned. God does sometimes lead us in confusing ways. But the end is absolutely certain. When Moses and uh, um, uh, Miriam in chapter 15 sing about this. They start by, by celebrating what God has done in liberating them despite the fact that they were confused about the way that he was leading them at the time. And then they look forward to the future. Verse 13 of chapter 15 In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia and all the other nations. By the power of your arm they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until your, the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We've seen it, they say, in the Red Sea, he's going to get us to the promised land. We've seen it in Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection to eternal life. He is going to get us to the new heaven and the new earth. It may, frankly, be confusing in the short term. But God is not going to give up on us.
how do we need to live? Knowing God. Knowing that this world will pass and our only security is in Christ. Knowing that though life may feel confusing, our path may feel tortuous. But we've seen enough to know he'll get us to eternity. But will we live it? Well, that's the question for us.